the cattle got out in the winter um, more than once, and then we were chasing them across the countryside on my birthday, found them just outside of town, two miles west away. Of town on the side of the highway <laughs> in a field laying down. Welcome to the 247th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In some ways, launching a farm from scratch on raw land sounds appealing, doesn't it? After all, one can put in place exactly the infrastructure required and not have to deal with the leftovers of the previous owners. Well, as farmer Hannah Bernhardt makes clear in the quote we shared at the top of this podcast, there are some drawbacks as well when the land in question even lacks something as basic as fencing. Hannah is well aware of what it's like to step onto a piece of open land and, in a modern form of homesteading, remake it into a farm by adding fencing, a house, a barn, and all the other basic elements that make it an agricultural business as well as a home. In 2016, she and Jason Missick purchased a 160-acre patch of land in Minnesota's Pine County. This is in an area that consists of low, rolling hills and a fair number of trees interspersed with wetlands and meadows. In a way, it's a precursor to the heavily timbered lands that dominate much of northern Minnesota. Although there are some crop and livestock operations in the area, farming is not the dominant form of land use here, given its lack of deep, prairie-based soils and the harsh climate. It's a far cry from the farm Hannah grew up on in southern Minnesota's Martin County. Rich soils and a relatively flat terrain make that county one of the top corn and soybean growing areas in the state. But with prime farmland comes prime prices. Recent figures out of the University of Minnesota show farmland in Martin County sells for an average of around $8,000 an acre. At those prices, It's inconceivable a beginning farmer could outbid a large cropping operation when seeking land to buy or even rent. So when Bernhardt and Missick were looking to launch a pasture-based livestock operation, they headed north, paying around $1,100 an acre for a worn-out hayfield. There was no house, no outbuildings, no well, not even fencing. It was truly raw land. But since 2016, the young couple has been busy. They built a house, sunk a well, and built a pole shed. They even erected an 1880s-era barn they had taken apart in southern Minnesota before the farmstead it stood on was bulldozed. By the way, that farm sold for $12,000 an acre. With the help of funding from the USDA's Environmental Quality Incentives Program, Hannah and Jason have also established an extensive fencing and watering system for rotational grazing. Today, their Medicine Creek farm is home to a thriving pasture-based lamb, beef, pork, and chicken enterprise. The operation direct markets all of their production to customers, most of whom reside in the Twin Cities. Hannah is adept at using social media to tell her farm story. Her animals in the land are extremely photogenic, and while scrolling through Medicine Creek's Instagram feed, it's easy to forget how much work has gone into setting up this operation. And that work continues. On a blustery October afternoon when I visited the farm, Hannah was busy moving the sheep utilizing portable electronet fencing. She joked that she wanted to move the sheep before they moved themselves, It turns out that one part of the farm still lacks permanent perimeter fencing, and the sheep had already gotten out that morning. In addition, their grazing paddocks still lack the high soil fertility needed to produce the kind of quality forage they could get further south of here. But Hannah and Jason maintain the extra work of launching and building a farming enterprise on open land is worth it. They crunched the numbers and concluded that for young farmers like themselves, who are willing to invest sweat equity into less than optimal acres, the long-term payout is greater than taking a huge financial risk on prime farmland. That's especially true if they can utilize a practice like managed rotational grazing to build soil health and thus convert those marginal acres into a higher-value resource. 
Hannah and Jason credit their experience with LSP's Farm Beginnings course with providing them the skills to do long-term financial planning and taking an innovative approach to land management. Hannah and Jason took the course during the winter of 2015-2016. A few years later, they were involved with LSP's follow-up program, Journey Person. Through these initiatives, they learned about financial management, holistic goal setting, and innovative marketing. The Farm Beginnings course, which LSP has been offering for over two decades in the Minnesota-Wisconsin region, is led by established farmers and offers opportunities for doing the kind of networking that supports new ag operations as they get up and running. Another reason Hannah and Jason had the confidence to start from scratch on marginal land was that in 2015 they participated in a Practical Farmers of Iowa tour of Gabe Brown's operation in North Dakota. Brown has shown that one can make a good living utilizing rotational grazing, no-till, diverse rotations, and multi-species cover cropping to build organic matter on marginal soils. Utilizing innovative livestock production systems to make a living on land that's not suitable for bin-busting corn yields is particularly attractive to beginning farmers with limited resources. Hannah and Jason aren't finished when it comes to building a farm from the roots up. Their long-term goal is to make the reassembled barn into a combination events slash education center, as well as an on-farm store and an Airbnb. They are also working constantly on building soil health using tweaks to their rotational grazing system. For example, they recently started utilizing bale grazing in their pastures as a way to improve their grazing paddocks while providing animals nutrition throughout the winter. Guiding the young farmer's efforts is the overall goal of making the land an important link between the health of the soil and how eaters view their food choices, as well as what public policies they support. After the sheep got moved on that recent autumn day, I joined Hannah and Jason in their 140-year-old barn to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of starting on open land. We also chatted about the joys of hauling water in a Minnesota winter and their efforts to connect a healthier climate to all those pretty pasture pics on Instagram. So Hannah and, and Jason, we had talked a little bit about this farm that you've kind of carved out of <laughs> nothing here a little bit. Basically, the situation is you were looking at maybe trying to find land in more what would be considered a more farming uh, type area of Minnesota, southern Minnesota, but that didn't work out. And so you found this land here in north eastern Minnesota that is not in a farming area or a traditionally farming area and is not, this farmland isn't prime farmland, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, and it had didn't have any infrastructure on it, it was basically raising hay. I think you had some good points to make about some of the advantages and disadvantages of coming on to kind of raw land and that that's, uh, and some of the reasons that you did that. that it, uh, in particular, you were talking about how you had an idea of how many head of livestock you would need to be viable and so you were trying to fit that number of acres to that kind of thing and this was this was an affordable option for you. Yeah so the first thing is the economic advantage of just buying a 160 acre hay field versus buying something that has infrastructure and the main thing about the infrastructure is that somebody else feels that it's valued highly and worth a lot of money but it might not fit your system of farming. So the advantage for us was we were able to find something we could afford that had a land base that was large enough to afford us to, you know, grow into with our animal numbers what we thought would make us profitable and be able to afford us a, a lifestyle here. But also we didn't have to undo infrastructure or repair damaged infrastructure that didn't fit our system of farming. So we got to put everything we wanted where we thought it would best serve the kind of farming we do, which is livestock-based regenerative, regenerative agriculture. Yeah, I mean, we got to 
decide where we wanted to put our house, um, which, you know, we got to look at the landscape and decide that, but also put it in the center, which made sense for then grazing all the way around the farm um, and having this be the central location. Yeah, we didn't we inherit didn't, somebody's junk pile. We didn't have to clean up any messes. We didn't inherit some overvalued uh, steel pole shed that was supposed to be hay storage. When we don't store hay, we put it out there and bale graze the animals. There's a lot of those advantages. One of the things you did with your business plan is you knew you wanted to raise pasture-based livestock, and so you knew you needed a certain land base Mm-hmm. to fit that and you weren't going to get that land base in southern Minnesota or in right. some more farming type areas. And we had also been just gotten back from Gabe Brown's ranch and so seeing like we we knew the importance of soil health and were really inspired by it but it's like how much you know how much land can you improve in southern Minnesota when you can only afford to buy 5 acres it's like if you can afford 160 acres like think of the good you can do improving that amount of soil so that was a big inspiration too I think as just aside from being like the more animals we can raise the more money we can make that we make it profitable um, and potentially someday support both of us working on the farm yeah and I think that that's an important point to bring up the soil health thing because it can help a maybe not optimal piece of land kind of punch above its weight a little bit in the future kind of thing that's definitely the case. I mean, we could have taken land down south that is considered, quote-unquote, prime farmland, and uh, we could have planted forage, like, say, it had been in crop rotation and we wanted to seed it down with forage. We could be growing a significantly, probably exponentially higher volume of forage probably the next year. Mm-hmm. However, that land was 10 times more expensive than the land that we have here, so it only made sense to do one thing, which was go for as much land as we thought we could get and have room to, you know, grow into with our uh, livestock numbers as we simultaneously built our customer base and already we're seeing in just four years, the biology is waking up, the forage is changing, the stands of forage are better, um, and we're, it, we're already finding that the land can support more numbers than the first year of grazing, the second year of grazing, the third year of grazing. I mean, it's just growing fast. The forage is, think, things are changing quickly and the biology is waking up. Yeah, so I mean, it was a better value in that way. In the long term, will, you know, ultimately be much better value. And then also, you know, you're not just cleaning up someone else's mess of like years of infrastructure, but it, you know, prime farmland that's been cropped conventionally would also have its own challenges of, of healing and, you know, coming alive again. That would have been its own issue whereas this which while it had been farmed conventionally it hadn't been hit so hard and uh, hadn't taken the beating that conventional farmland had just because it was used less yeah and and give me an idea how much kind of percentage wise how much cheaper land is up here than you you had talked about that earlier yeah I mean you know Hannah's family comes from Martin County and it I mean the, the the land that I took this timber frame barn off was sold for 12000 an acre two years ago, and the bank audited the sale because they thought it seemed suspicious because the price was so low. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it, you know, when we bought here, it was uh, between eleven and 1200 an acre. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, I mean, I think locals thought we were crazy because it should have been a flat thousand an acre. And we were paying too much. <laughs> so, but, and then the other thing about this is from a renting standpoint, like say we're, we're, we're pushing our capacity, the carrying capacity of the land. And if we wanted to rent, we can rent uh, adjacent farmland for $15 an acre, or we could rent someone's hay fields and hay it ourselves for $15 an acre. The same farmland down south that we were looking at, that's 10500 to 12500 or more an acre, rents for $275 an acre. And so our opportunity to expand as we get this place paid off, it's just much greater. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a better opportunity up here for us. And, you know, I mean, while this isn't, I think, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning, and I've I felt a little bit like oh, I, had, I should jump up and speak for the local people. It's not generally considered like farming communities as much, but there's a long history of it here. This is a big dairy area. This is still a cow-calf pear area. People can raise hay up here for cheaper than they can down south, and land is cheaper here, and so they can raise their calves for cheaper and sell them, you know, to market. So there, there's, you know, it's around. I think mo- most of the farmers here, I think as most is the case for most farmers all across the country, earn most of their living uh, off farm, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people who say like, oh yeah, I still got my day job to support my beef habit, and they keep uh, cows and they sell the calves, you know. Uh, at the sale barn or whatever. There is some, yeah, it's it's around. I mean, if you drive around, you'll see hay fields and you'll see cattle kept. Nobody up here, with maybe one exception, is doing rotationally grazed uh, livestock production like we are. And we raise the eyebrows of our neighbors for sure. And nobody up here is like inclined to go out of their way to tell you what you should be doing or why you're doing it wrong. But it does come up in conversations with locals and they say, well, now how come you're doing Oh, okay. You know, that. But, especially the bale grazing. Yeah. The bale grazing is insane to them. I mean, they just think you, you put out a bale feeder and you bring them a bale every day or twice a day. Yeah. That's what you do. They don't, you know, and so then I try to engage them about soil fertility and carbon sequestration and mycorrhizal fungi and root exudates, and they just, (laughs) their eyes gloss over, and they go, oh, I suppose, okay. (laughs) But you could save a lot of money and a lot of waste on hay if you didn't let them make a mess of it and lay in it. They'd eat a lot more, and that, you know, well, that's carbon, that's going to go back to the soil, and that in turn is going to create better forage, and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's different. That's different. different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all kinds. Yeah. yeah, so let's talk about the disadvantages. Uh, and, and I witnessed it firsthand a little bit. I went out to the pasture, and you were, uh, Hannah, you were moving sheep. And as you put it, otherwise they move themselves uh, <laughs> because you this had no permanent, permanent fencing. So right. it's a lot of moving fence, and there's some other disadvantages to having coming to a piece of land that's, that's completely raw like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Animals escaping is harder when you don't have a per- permanent perimeter fence. Um, and I think that's that was probably the main one over time. Sheep are can be difficult to keep fenced anyway, but like in the winter when there's snow on our temporary fences and it's only charged by a solar charger, there's like not enough sun in the day in the winter to keep the charge full all the time, and then snow on the fence is making the charge less, so... Like we it's had, a psychological barrier. The, the cattle got out in the winter um, more than once, and then we were chasing them across the countryside on my birthday. We found them just outside of town, two Mile miles west away. Of town on the side of the highway <laughs> in a field laying down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Yeah. yeah. It was a great day. <laughs> and then hauling water has been a huge challenge. Um, so because only half of our farm still has 
water lines to it in the summer when it's really hot. I'm hauling water to the cattle four times a day if they're on the north side of the farm. And then in the winter, it's just the challenges of watering in freezing weather. And then stock tanks getting frozen over and trying to chip ice and then chipping holes in the tanks themselves. So there's definitely challenges to that. And now we have a permanent winter water and that has made my life much, much easier. Um, And nobody escapes the permanent fence in the winter anymore. (laughs) You had to build a house, you had to sink a well, you had, you know, all of that really starting from scratch. I guess one advantage is you knew it's you know it's new, <laughs> it's yeah. not used. But that, that, that I mean, was there some other ways you kind of you, you've kind of used some creative ways to get over have, not having that permanent infrastructure? It sounds like. Yeah, and I mean, I think the new model of farming. I mean, there's you know like uh, sustainable farming association. They're teaching people. I mean, they're trying to get grazing contracts on land where there's no permanent infrastructure whatsoever. And I think that's really cool and it's innovative and it's probably in a lot of ways it might be a more affordable way to do it than owning your land or buying land with infrastructure i mean i think the main thing is you have to you have to be inclined to put in the sweat equity if you're going to take on something like buying a hayfield with no infrastructure and you want to establish like a working livestock farm you're going to have to be willing to put in the work and you probably are going to have to not be intimidated by doing things you've never done before like physically mechanically uh, so you know, I have a little bit of carpentry experience, but I never have never been a carpenter as a trade, but I wasn't afraid to build a house. And, you know, it's the same, like each step is a learning process. And if you're willing to put in the work, I mean, there's no shortage in the age of the internet of watching YouTube videos. I have to do it all the time. How do I sweat pipes? How do I install a radiant boiler system for my house? You know, these are things that I, I have to do. And it's the same thing. How do you do fencing? How do you do water lines? How do you do any of it? How do you set up an animal livestock working area? Really, if you're just willing to learn and not be afraid to make mistakes and put in the sweat equity, I think there it's mostly advantages. Uh, being in Minnesota, the ground is only not frozen six months out of the year. That's a disadvantage. <laughs> and all of this stuff sort of needs to happen at once. It's like, well, you got to pick your battles and prioritize and, you know, kind of take the long trajectory, which I'm not a patient person. So that's that's challenging for me also. It's like, well, we need everything, and we need it all now, but there's only two of us, and so we have to pick our battles and just chip away every day. One thing I really do like, though, is that, like, it has taken a little bit of time. Like, I've I've got to run the operation with no permanent infrastructure and then see where I like things before we then put the permanent infrastructure in. Like, that, I really like that because some things have really worked out that way, and I think even if we had done the fence to the north side two years ago when we talked about it, I would have done it differently. And now that I've grazed it two more years, I see where I want the fence to go a different place. And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you're going to then, you know, graze it for, I don't know, 30 years, (laughs) yeah, um, it makes a big difference if it's where you want the gates to be and, and... and it makes sense the flow of which direction they're going and when they're coming through to get loaded. So that's a that's a major plus. That's a really good point because you're building up you're building up the infrastructure, you're kind of building up your business, you are building up your markets in a way that you can maybe they can all kind of come together. You're 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 setting up this barn here which which you hope to do an on-farm store and have 
maybe it be an Airbnb and an event center and that and kind of bring get more community involved. But that it's a way that you can kind of you don't have one piece that's way ahead of the other. You can kind of maybe bring them all together a little bit to uh, yeah. uh, kind of jive them a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we had just bought a farm with a big barn that we could do events in, it's like we wouldn't have had people to come yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And this way, you know, we've had more customers get to know us and, you know, interested in the farm, more people than following me on social media and sort of learning the names of the dogs and feeling invested in the farm. And Mm -hmm. so now having a farm store makes a little more sense because we've got more people coming through saying, oh, I'm going up to Duluth. Can I stop by and see the dogs or the sheep? So yeah, for sure. In that way, it's kind of all growing together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as the customer base grows, the soil quality and the forage is improving, which means we can stock higher rates of animals on the uh, higher numbers of animals on the land. And then as you know, so I think everything is really growing together. However, all of these things are being built simultaneously, too. (laughs) So it's like you got to deal, build more customers and create more interest. And you're taking care of your animals and you're growing more animals Mm -hmm. and you know fencing has to happen and water lines have to happen and all of these buildings and the infrastructure has to happen and that's all been happening all at once also I mean you do take each day as one thing at a time but there just are not enough hours in the day one of the things I really liked that you talked about before was this idea that uh, you are drawing the customers in maybe because of happy animals or providing a good source of meat, that kind of thing. But then kind of teaching them about soil health and how this doesn't happen by accident, that, that connection there. And that's another way to kind of build the infrastructure. As you're building the infrastructure of your soil, you're also maybe building that community connection to the soil a little bit. Yeah, we hope so. I think people are interested in us because of the happy animals and and animal welfare and healthy food. But we do hope that we're then educating them about soil health. And, you know, since the beginning of my website, I've had a soil health page there, which I'm sure most people just gloss over or don't read at all. But the idea is that once they come and see it and we like tell them, oh, and by the way, did you know, like the beef you're eating is sequestering carbon and it's fighting climate change? Uh, that is really an eye-opener for a lot of people and sticks with them and they remember it. And we do hope that eventually this will be a place where we can do even formal education about soil health. At that point, maybe the bonus will be also buying some meat. And, you know, you'll come for the soil health education and you'll just get some meat on the side (laughs) instead of the other way around. By the way... You can check out Hannah's gorgeous farm images at her Medicine Creek Farm Instagram account. For more information on the Land Stewardship Project's Farm Beginnings and Journey Person initiatives, see farmbeginnings.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Also, here's a heads up. LSB staffer Elizabeth Makowitz is launching a podcast study group based on race and our food system. If you're interested in joining, email Elizabeth at e-m-a-k-a-r-e-w-i-c-z at landstewardshipproject.org. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, 
who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. <music>